0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. I am super excited to have as a guest on today's podcast the man who's had an enormous impact on my life over the past 32 years, my AA sponsor, Mike S. My personal AA story is so intertwined with Mike's that you're likely to learn more about me in today's podcast than you have in any other interview. When we first met in late 1988, I'd been sober only about 10 months. I had all but given up on AA and was headed toward relapse. You see, though I attended meetings and wasn't drinking, I also wasn't doing the steps nor any of the work to stay sober. Worst of all, I didn't have a sponsor to guide me and to whom I could be accountable. Mike had been in AA a year longer than I, but he'd gotten a sponsor at three months who worked him through the Twelve Steps very methodically, with an emphasis on the spiritual nature of our program. The deep and collective wisdom that Mike imparted to me was gleaned from his sponsor, who had a great sponsor. No sooner had Mike begun to sponsor me and put me to work Then my program took off and soon became sober-centric. To this day, Mike's guidance in AA has been indispensable to my sobriety and an integral part of my personal story. Interestingly, Mike hasn't lived in my city since 1994, yet we've remained closely in touch over all these years. Frequent phone calls, emails, texts, and Mike's business visits to Houston have made the miles between us irrelevant to our relationship. So much of what I know about living an enriched, sober life and carrying AA's message to other alcoholics, I learned from Mike. His own story is both meaningful and intriguing. So on this, the 27th episode of AA Recovery Interviews, please enjoy my good friend, sponsor, and AA brother, Mike S. Hi, I'm Mike. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Mike. I'm glad you could be here today. Mike is my long-term, long-time friend and sponsor in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm so glad you could be here. Actually, you're not here. You're on Zoom. You're out on the West Coast, and it's just been beautiful. To have this amazing journey with you over the past 32 years, because we didn't meet until I had been sober almost a year, what do you remember about when we first met?
1: I remember we, I walked in the postal club. Uh And you happen to be sitting up against the wall. And so I saw a seat over there walking up next to you and Uh uh, sat down, said, anybody sitting here? And you said, nope. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking down and I'm seeing your shoes. They are the shiniest shoes I've ever seen. (laughs) So I said, I said, where do you get those done? You said, I get those done at Reds. I said, where is that? And and I said, I'm going to go down and get them. And so Mm -hmm. what happened was so interesting. I went down and got my shoes shined and they were just like glass. Came back the next day and I was like a little kid. I said, Howard, look, look at what I did. (laughs) And you're sitting there with sitting there with the shiny, both of us shiniest shoes you've ever seen.
0: Yeah. And this would have been in October of nineteen eighty eight. That's right. So I got sober in January. I didn't start going to AA until April. I tried to do the program without doing the work, without a sponsor. I had actually asked two other men to be my sponsor over a period of about two months, both of whom turned me down, and I was crushed both times. Do you remember us walking out together from that meeting and what happened?
1: You know, I don't know that I do, Howard. Not that particular meeting. Okay, well, I will... will (laughs) You'll tell me what happened.
0: Yeah, I will help you recollect. So I remember what happened was, this was middle of October of 1988. After the meeting, we walked out together. We went up those stairs from the basement where the club was. And we were walking to the car. We were chit-chatting about something, maybe about the, the meeting and everything. And you said to me, do you have a sponsor? And my first response to you, because I felt so ashamed about not having a sponsor, especially given the fact that two men who I'd asked to be my sponsor had turned me down. I said, yeah, I have a sponsor. And I remember you looking at me and you said, you don't have a sponsor, do you? And I said... No. I don't. <laughs> I don't. You you saw right through it. And then what you said was, "Howard, I'll tell you what. Let's give it 30 days. I'll I'll do it for 30 days." And I remember, Mike, at that point I felt crushed again. I thought, "Oh, man. Two guys turned me down. The only guy to say yes to me is only giving me 30 days about it." <laughs> and do you remember what you told me from that point on why 30 days? No. Okay, well, I'll I'll, rec- I'll help you recollect like that <laughs> <Thank> as well. <laughs> this may be a very one-sided remember, interview. Howard, I'm uh, an
1: alcoholic. I don't remember a whole lot.
0: <laughs> so, so you said, and I've used this over the years as I've sponsored other men, you said, well, the reason why we give it 30 days is because asking someone to sponsor you is a little bit like asking someone to marry you. If they say yes, you're all set, and the expectations remain very, very high. If we give it 30 days, then we've intentionally set the expectations low. And if at the end of 30 days, it's not working out, we can make a clean break with the idea and the understanding that we only meant to give it 30 days. So neither one of us feels really bad about it. But if it's working after 30 days, then we just go on until such point at which we decide it's not working. And that was, like I said, almost 33 years ago, come uh, come October. Where did you learn that from?
1: Uh, as you're saying it, I'm telling you, I know where it came from. It came from my sponsor because yeah, I didn't what? know. I mean, I, I had didn't really know how to sponsor at that point. And right. so I just used his wording because I remember when you said, will you sponsor me? And if I said that, then what I did is I called my sponsor and I said, what do I do now? And my sponsor was the one that just said, this is how you do it.
0: Right, because you'd only been... uh, What's your sobriety date? January
1: 11th of 87.
0: Okay, so January 11th. Did your sponsor prepare you for that question coming your way?
1: Yes, because when I asked my sponsor to sponsor me, guess what he said? I remember that now. He said, let's do it for 30 days.
0: (laughs) How did you feel when he did that? Oh, you know, I wasn't into
1: anything permanent in AA yet. Uh Even in the first year. You know, I went to uh-huh. a lot of meetings and you know, but i wasn't wasn't really into it so when he first said, I mean, I'd gone three months without a sponsor uh-huh. and I, you know eventually I'll tell you how he he showed up in my life, but I didn't have a sponsor to begin with, huh. so then I wasn't doing any sponsoring right. and so i didn't I guess when he said that, I guess I was, you know okay, we'll do that
0: and so all these years later, is it safe to say he's been your sponsor all these years as well? yes,
1: still has I still call him, still talk to him, still ask him questions,
0: yeah. The beautiful thing about that mike and i've told you this before and i've also told him is that you moved uh, away from houston with your wife who's also in the program in 94 Right. right? right from so it's been 27 years since you've lived here and what's really extra cool is that your sponsor I've seen in more meetings over the last ten years or so than before, and so I really got to know my grand sponsor really well. And right. how did he scoop you up as a sponsor, or a pigeon, as he likes to call him? All
1: right. So here's the deal. It was a Good Friday morning. I'm mm-hmm. at a meeting, and yeah. I, at the old Post Oak, and right. I am talking about how honest I'm being. Uh, I was getting divorced. <laughs> And my wife at the time hadn't signed one of the pieces on the divorce Uh decree. And so Uh I thought, well, I'll just go ahead and sign that, like her signature. And then I Uh thought, no, that's not right. (laughs) So (laughs) what I did, I said, I'm going to uh, call her and have her sign it herself. Well, the whole thing in my mind was I just wanted to see her again. You know, oh. just getting in trouble like always. Uh-huh, and so uh-huh. I'm telling this in a meeting and I'm saying, you know, so then I decided that wasn't honest and that's not part of the program. You know, I'm being so self-righteous. And yeah. I, the meeting was over and people are coming up and they're going, oh, Mike, you really got this program down. Boy, you <laughs> have it. I've got three months of sobriety. And and this guy, all of a sudden I heard this voice come into my ear and said, you have no self-honesty. You're going to back out and drink. And I'm like, what? And I looked around, and there's Dan. And he says, you have no self-honesty, and that's what's going to make you drink again. And I went, oh, my God. He had my number. He wow. saw right through it. So I said, well, listen, what are you doing now? And he said, well, I'm nothing. I said, let's go to breakfast. And we went to breakfast over at the old Madeleine, sitting uh-huh. outside, beautiful April morning.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And that's when I asked him to be my sponsor, because I realized he was so... Hi honest with everything. What he told me was, he says, you're not you're not trying to be honest. You're trying to go uh-huh. see your ex-wife all over wow. again. That's how you get in trouble. And I went, I'm just, this guy is so honest. I want to be around, around this guy.
0: Had you ever been around men like that in your life before? Were there any other men that were that straightforward with you? No.
1: Well, if they're that straightforward, they'd beat the crap really? out of me, not physically, but really? verbally. And he didn't do that. He just, you know, I see what you're doing and you don't have to do that.
0: He's a very kind and loving, but very direct and sometimes abrasive with his brutal assessment of situations. But
1: I needed that. I needed someone, not so much abrasive, but I needed someone direct with me because I'm a BSer. Oh my God, can I BS? Mm -hmm. And I've learned how to do that so well. I BS myself. And so it's like he wasn't going to be BSed at all.
0: Did you ever think when you were growing up that you'd end up in AA? No,
1: not at all. What was so interesting is I remember the first time I had a taste of alcohol, it was a beer and it was after like a little picnic and there were some people that left their glasses of beer and I took a little sip of it and I went, oh my God, how can uh-huh. people drink this stuff? And I just spit it out. So, you know, alcohol and I wasn't around it. I mean, I really? never saw people drunk around me.
0: Was there any alcoholism or that kind of behavior in your family when you were growing up? Not that I know of. Huh.
1: You know, it's so interesting. People just seem to... Just drink normally, whatever normal was. And my dad, for example, would come home at night, you know, from work, and he'd have a beer and sit down, read the paper, and then have a a meal. And then that was about it. Only one time, I remember late one night, my dad Uh and mom had been out somewhere, and I could hear him a little more boisterous, a little more laughing uh, but that's, but that was just, you know, a fleeting memory that showed up. I must've woken up and heard it and went back to sleep. That's the only wow. time I ever heard anything, but never even thought, the no, never in my
0: life. Were there any people in the town or amongst your parents' friends that, that showed up that you could look back now and say, I think that guy was probably an alcoholic? Nope. Wow. So as compared to some of the guests I've had on the show, you were really... Shelter, not even sheltered because nobody was trying to keep you away from it, but it just wasn't around you? Is that
1: what you're saying? No, it just wasn't around me. And, uh, you know, I never thought of drinking it because I, I couldn't stand the taste of it. Yeah, and so, yeah. uh, you know, even though my parents had alcohol in the house, I guess, I don't ever remember really seeing it much. But uh, they had people over now and then, and they would always talk about having a high ball or, or something, you know, but I didn't know what it was.
0: How about your—now, bro- you have one brother mm-hmm. and a sister— I have two sisters. Two sisters and a brother. Uh, and where are you in the in the pecking order?
1: I have two sisters that are older and then me and then my brother. He's 5 years old uh, younger than I am and five my, years I'm younger. 4 years younger than my sister.
0: In growing up with them, did you notice anything about their uh behavior or the people they were hanging with or seeing them watching them uh, interact with other people that made you think maybe they were drinking? Nope. No. Nope? Wow. <laughs> Well, you got this crystal clean family going on here. I do. (laughs) I really
1: did. Thinking back, I just, you know, I don't have any history that I can think of or people around me.
0: That's amazing. So you grew up in North Dakota? The town you grew up in was not all that big, was it? It
1: was about 20,000. That was pretty
0: big at the time. Yeah, okay. So. You never heard of AA before, or didn't know any alcoholic.
1: You know, I don't know that I hadn't heard of AA. You know, I had—I've heard this people say this before too. And I thought of AA. I thought about maybe people under the bridge. You know, yeah. I guess when you think about it, I—I I, I maybe had seen a guy somewhere under the bridge somewhere, right. probably with a bottle in a bag. Right. But that was always that was them. Like, God, how could I ever relate to someone like that? Those poor
0: guys. Uh huh. So you're picking up a drink whenever it was that you first started. When was it that you actually started to drink, either for effect or to fit in or for other reasons?
1: Well, I remember it was uh, 1960. Uh It was New Year's Eve, and my parents had gone to uh, another town, and they left Uh me at home. And I'm 16, Uh and um, I had talked, believe it or not. The bus driver from high school was a policeman, and I talked him into buying alcohol for us because I knew I'd invited some guys over to be there for New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. So we everybody got there. And what I really kind of remember, this is what's so strange. I had vodka. I had mm-hmm. uh, tomato juice. And I knew nothing about alcohol at all. And I poured a, <laughs> way too much vodka and too little juice. And it was just like, oh, and I took a drink of it. I thought I was going to throw up. And then I took another drink of it. And then pretty soon, I, I guess I just felt drunk. I guess it was a drunk feeling. and And I yeah. lost parts of the evening. I kind of remember that someone said, you know, we ought to go drive somewhere. And I don't know when they, anybody else was drunk like I was, but I knew I knew I was, mm-hmm. I guess, drunk. And that was the first time I'd yeah. ever done it. 16. Uh-huh. And um, wow. I, got, I remember even they were driving down the road and there was snow everywhere. And someone said, oh, the cops are chasing us. And they threw the beer out and then they counted trees so they could go back and get it. And almost drove the car <laughs> into the ditch. And that's about all that I remember. I don't remember any more of that night.
0: Did you get pulled over? Or- no.
1: We didn't get pulled over, uh, and I don't know that there was a policeman that saw the, the car or anything. I just—that's all I just remember pieces of the night.
0: What was your feeling the next day about what had happened? You
1: know, I, I felt terrible. I just remember I mm. felt terrible. I just—I felt like throwing up. I thought I would had a really bad headache, um, mm-hmm. but I thought you know, but di- but I didn't think, oh, I'm never going to do that again. Now, that that's pretty mm-hmm. traumatic to say, well, I'm never going to do that again. But I didn't say that. I don't remember saying that. And that so that's January of 1960. And I don't mm-hmm. remember having another drink until... I remember my graduation in 1962, May of 62, mm-hmm. I was with a friend, a, f- a female friend of mine, and mm-hmm. we just kind of mm-hmm. hung out that night, and we got some stuff called slow gin, and we just drank a yeah. little bit of it, but didn't drink much at all, and I didn't want to, and she, she didn't want to, and that was the next time wow. I drank. So it was a long time. I was not a drinking. I wasn't in there with a bottle every day. I wasn't stealing my parents' booze, all the stories I've heard. Yeah, Alcohol had no, I had no desire for it. And what happened was I, I when I was in high school, ran with a, a group of five guys, five girls. We didn't date or anything. We just had fun with each other and none of us drank.
0: Really? Yeah. That is, that's amazing. For somebody with that kind of background to turn into an alcoholic. Yeah. I mean, what are the odds, right? I'm going to breeze through life. <laughs> So when did all of that go south for you is what I want to know. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what happened is I went
1: to college right? and um, I turned 21. Uh And once I turned 21, this friend of mine and I that I'd known him since third grade, uh, we used to go Mm -hmm. down to the bars. And it was a big thing to go Mm -hmm. down to the bars. And, you know, it gradually evolved when we would drink. Happy hour would show up. And they'd say, uh-huh. "Okay, happy hour. Okay, they're half price. They were like twenty-five cents a, a glass of beer." Right. And we'd order uh-huh. by when eight o'clock when it was going to be over. I'd have twelve or fourteen beers in front of it <laughs> and because <Right. laughs> you know saving money.
0: Yeah. And so yeah, I would, right.
1: I would drink. So then I'd drink those, but it, but it uh-huh. never seemed like. Uh, the, the word alcoholic never came up. It's just the way it was done. You know, right. I looked down the bar yeah. and everybody else had 12 beers in front of them.
0: Yeah. And so yeah. I don't
1: know whether people get, were getting drunk or not. I never felt that I was really drunk. I mean, I guess I
0: mm-hmm. guess
1: I was after 12 beers. Yeah. But, and that was it. And I would Did drive. You... I would drive just like everybody else would drive. Really? I didn't have wow. a car. It was always my dad's car or, or my friend's car. But uh, it never seemed to be a problem with drinking. I always thought a little driving. I drove a little bit better when I drank. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. So by this point, had you acquired a taste for beer or was it just that that's what they were serving?
1: I hate and always have hated the taste of beer. Really? So it must've been the connection of feeling good. You know, you have a beer, you have a couple beers yeah. pretty soon, you start a little buzz, you're kind of fun. You're talking a little more if everything's a little bit funnier, you know? So I guess it's uh-huh. just the camaraderie of drinking with somebody. And then of course, if they were drunk and I was drunk, I didn't know that they were drunk. They looked perfectly sober right. to me.
0: Right. So that's at 21. Did you make it all the way through college without any difficulties? Almost without any difficulties. I um, I joined a fraternity, and that uh-huh. really
1: brought on the drinking when they do the kegs. And, you know, you know, being in North Dakota, this is the, the insanity. There was a thing they used called Groundhog's Day. Well, that's, you know, whatever that is, the 5th, 2nd right. of February or something. Freezing, Terrible cold. And they would always have a keg that day, or a couple of kegs. Uh-huh. And, and they would have to move the keg so f- far enough away from the fire so it didn't warm up, but not so far that it didn't freeze, because that's how cold it was. And what they always <laughs> did is they took the pledges in the fraternity, and they made them drink the foam off the top. So, of course, that got you oh. a lot of beer. And I remember yeah. always thinking, God, I hope somebody doesn't wander off somewhere in their left, because I'm thinking everybody's getting drunk. Well, I don't know if anybody's getting drunk or not. They would have those, but, but I, um, see, here's why I didn't think I had a problem. Whenever I had something really important to do, I didn't drink because I knew if I drank, it wouldn't get done. And so, Mm -hmm. so I thought I had total control of my drinking and getting drinking too much. Never made a, it never seemed like a problem for me. If you drank too much, you drank too much. That's all there was to it.
0: Hmm hmm. So would that classify you more as a binge drinker? That was what I always was, was a binge drinker. When I drank, you know, yeah. they,
1: uh, Bill Wilson talks about it in the big book, you know, that kind of right. alcoholic that once I start, I don't know yeah. when I'm going to stop. I only uh-huh. stopped when yeah. I ran out of beer or I fell asleep or I passed out. hmm.
0: So here you are. Was it Fargo, North Fargo. Dakota that you were in? Or you were in Fargo. So you got out of college. What was your life looking like at that point? What were your plans and what were you going to do?
1: Well, I had just gotten my graduate degree because I hadn't uh-huh. been drafted yet. I still had a student deferment. So I got four years, got a business degree, and then I got a psych- psychology degree. Because my mother said, why don't you go back to school to get it? Well, that was a time when I didn't drink at all because I, I had a lot of work to do. I was working. I was work, doing my thesis. Sure. I, was, I was going to uh-huh. I was studying, And so I didn't drink mm-hmm. at all that year. But I, then I got drafted. Yeah. And uh, when I got drafted, yeah. I went in the army. Uh, basic training, yeah. you can't drink at all because you're not, right. not off. Uh, the next eight weeks was AIT. Every week I went to a guy that I met there said, said, listen, my family lives in New York. Let's go to New York on the weekend. So we'd take the bus up, never any alcohol uh-huh. at all. And then I went huh. to OCS, no drinking there mm-hmm. at all, period. It didn't mm-hmm. bother me. I mm-hmm. never felt deprived when I didn't have a drink. It was just like, you know, not yeah. having peanut butter sandwiches, you know, so you don't have a big deal. Yeah. But then yeah. I, um, I got out of OCS and I went to some training up in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And it was a place uh-huh. where a lot of second lieutenants yeah. in the Army, we all kind of stayed in the same building downtown in Baltimore. And uh, uh-huh. a lot of drinking going on there. You'd go out and get beer and you get, you know, five or six cases at a time and your refrigerator uh-huh. had nothing but beer in it. So a lot of here. drinking there.
0: What year was that that you got drafted? That
1: was, I got drafted in 1967, went through OCS in 67, 68. And then I, that was 68 when I was in Baltimore, just before I went to Vietnam. I went to Vietnam in August of 68.
0: Yeah, that's just about the time that my brother was there. Mm-hmm. He was in a place called Phu Bai. So you were a lieutenant by that point because you had gone to officer training school. Is that because of the college degree that you had, that you were able to, to do
1: that? Well, partly that, yeah. And they've said, you know, if you, if you, when I was going to get drafted and I enlisted, they said, you get a better choice if you enlist. So I knew it was coming. So I, I enlisted and I got officer candidate school. I remember it was with about three days after I had joined, actually joined in the army and gone to basic training. My, my mother told me my draft notice came.
0: Your number in that lottery. was Not even pretty- a lottery yet. It was just—it was called One A. How did you feel when you found out you were going to be going to Vietnam?
1: You know, it's strange. Um, I didn't want to go, and, mm-hmm. um, and but I felt—you know—I was caught in the middle, Howard. You know, I was—I was in that in-between group. Um, the there was a group, you know, before me that said, "But government says go, you go, you serve your government." And a group after me, they were the ones that were demonstrating, saying, "Hell no, we won't go." And uh, my right. next door neighbor. Uh, that I grew up with, he um, went to Canada. And then he ended up going to jail. And then Carter gave some amnesty. So they let him off. But my best friend, his brother, was missing in Vietnam. So he wasn't sent to Vietnam. So I'm going. Muhammad Ali's going. I'm not going. And they threw him in jail. And so I I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And and the hard part was nothing to do with alcohol. But I I felt it. My mother, she couldn't go Uh to the airport when my dad took me to the airport. And she wasn't an emotional mm-hmm. person, but she I can't go. We get halfway out yeah. there, and darn, the airport's like a mile away. We ran out of gas. So we oh called my, my mother. God. Of course, my mother says, it's a sign. Don't go. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I went, and I just didn't know. And you get, you get kind of callous about it. Because I remember yeah. we used to sing in OCS, uh, yummy, yummy, yummy. I got lead in my tummy. I'm going to die in Vietnam. It was, it was just like no big deal. You get so numb to it.
0: My goodness. Of the men that were in your OCS and in the, the barracks with you there in uh, Baltimore, how many of those men went to Vietnam? Were you amongst a large group or a small group?
1: Well, I, was, I graduated from the infantry school, so most of the people there were going to go to Vietnam. They didn't, but most of them were. Uh-huh. And we were just going to have a good time until we left. We were there for, for 60 days, and, uh, 90 days maybe, uh-huh. and then that was it. We had orders. We already had orders for Vietnam. We know where we were going. So it was, you know, Mm, mm. and when you first go, it was like, well, if you die, you die, big deal until you get there for six months. Mm. And you go, wait a minute, I've been here for six months. Now I don't want to die.
0: Well, I want to just pause here for a moment and just say that if any of this is something that you would rather not talk about, I'm okay with that. Because I've known all kinds of different men who had experiences with Vietnam. Some they choose to talk, some they choose not to.
1: No, I'm fine. I I've uh, talked all this through. I've done a lot of work on myself, and you know, maybe some of the what uh-huh. happened to me. Um, maybe that's how I got through Vietnam, just drinking. Maybe that's how it was. Yeah.
0: When you got there, what were you immediately uh, in in the line of fire, or where were you when you got to Vietnam?
1: Well, when I when we flew in, I could see the. You know, flashes of something, and I thought, "Boy, we're right in the middle of it." So uh, it wasn't wow. long before I was right out in the middle of it, where they, you know, I you, you could have been killed any day. You just didn't know what was going to happen, hmm. and uh, uh-huh. and so I, I was responsible for uh, interrogating prisoners of war. So I had to travel with the troops, and uh, uh-huh. but I could go back out of that uh, during uh, sometimes in the evening and get out away from being right out in the field. And that's where people yeah. always had alcohol, always had beer, and it just seemed normal to drink. And it just seemed so much easier just to have a couple beers and kind of take the edge off.
0: And weren't a lot of soldiers also smoking pot at that point because it was so plentiful?
1: There were. I didn't do pot. I didn't, uh, you know, I have one tiny little experience after I came back from Vietnam with pot, but I didn't smoke it.
0: Right. Okay, so... The relief and release that you got from what was going on in your daily life there, you got from beer and, and or and or other alcohol. Just beer. Just beer. You see, here's Just the deal, beer. Howard.
1: If I drank beer, I wouldn't get drunk. If I drank hard liquor, I'd get drunk. So I drank beer and huh. I got drunk. <laughs> <laughs> it's that I can't drink wine and hard liquor because I'll get drunk. So I drink beer and get drunk. The, the rationale of an alcoholic is so sick
0: so is it safe to say you were trying to avoid getting drunk no you didn't
1: no i just drank and you know like i said if i had something
0: really important to get done i didn't drink because i knew i'd get drunk or wouldn't get it done or do it wrong were you in vietnam for the what was it 12 month uh deployment 363 and a half days and the night
1: before i came home we had incoming rounds and i kept going oh i can't believe it i've made it this long and now i'm going to die And I didn't, you know, when you're there and it's happening, at least I didn't realize the uh, effect it was having on me.
0: Mm -hmm. Was that something that showed up later as PTSD?
1: Yeah. When I came back from Vietnam, uh, uh, I remember I was home and I was just sleeping in one of the bedrooms. And my mother said she walked by the Mm -hmm. room and I stood straight up and she looked like I was ready to fight. I was pretty oh. edgy, you know. A firecracker, oh my God, would drive me crazy. Huh. Uh,
0: yeah, and and I didn't realize how much of an effect it had on me. Huh. And yet, they really weren't doing very much with PTSD at the time you came back. Well, no, there wasn't. A,
1: they didn't have a term for it. I think they called it uh, shell shock or something like that.
0: Shell shock, right? Or battle fatigue, battle fatigue or whatever fatigue, they. Yeah. they When you came back would have been, what, uh, towards the height of a lot of the student demonstrations and a lot of the anti-war protests. Uh, What was that experience like coming back and seeing that or being involved in, in the military while that was going on? I'll tell
1: you what. I came back to Fort Hood, Texas. The, the demonstrations were going on and the soldiers were practicing every day for handling uh, demonstrations. Not that they wanted mm-hmm. to hurt anybody, but they were, you know, mm-hmm. they'd bayonets and they'd walk with the scary stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: wasn't involved in that at all, but I'd see it. But when I came back, what I heard was a lot of GIs got a lot of grief from people when they were coming back, you know, baby killers mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. So I'd hear this stuff. but um, But it was just, you know, I was administrative stuff when i got back it wasn't anything i would go to work every day and go home but drinking beer and there was a little annex called the officer's annex and so i would go uh-huh. over there at four thirty when we got off and i'd stay there till seven or eight o'clock until i you know i was drunk almost every night but i wasn't trying to say mm. oh i gotta go out and get drunk i just would drink
0: and then i'd drive yeah. home that's Fort Hood. That's in. Is that in Killeen? Is that where that is? That's Killeen, Texas. Yep. So, how long was? Uh, how long were you in the service then? Well, I got, I was.
1: Got, went in the service from sixty in sixty seven, June of sixty seven, and got out in May of seventy one. So it was four years.
0: Is that because you had enlisted as opposed to being
1: drafted? I had two years enlistment. And then when I got to OCS, they added on a year. And then the Uh circumstances were such, they said, if you want to get another year and go to captain, then I went stayed and I didn't have to go back to Vietnam. I did not want to go back Uh to Vietnam. So if I would have stayed longer, they told me, if you do, you're going to go back to Vietnam.
0: So any thoughts of a career in the military were kind of squashed by that, huh? For me, it was, yeah. For having to
1: go back. Oh, no, I didn't want to go back. I was just my chance. I took my chances once and not going to play
0: that game again. So were you at Fort Hood until the end of your enlistment?
1: I was. And what happened, uh-huh. the reason I stayed and and then stayed in Colleen
0: was mm-hmm. uh,
1: I met a woman there. You know, it was a young woman. She was about uh, four, five years younger than I was. I was 23 and I think she was about 19 or something like that. And yeah, I just, yeah. I immediately just fell in love. This is it. This is, and I saw her and she thought I was a smart alley because I was a first lieutenant and I was a hot shot. And, and I was, I thought, well, look at me. <laughs> yeah. I've been, my, I'm right. wearing that patch on my right shoulder. See, I've been to Vietnam and I just acted like a right. jerk. So then I called her and I said, you want to go out? She says, heavens, no, I don't want to go out. Are you kidding me? And so she said, no. I remember one Saturday... I had duty in the morning. I got over to the officer's annex and drank at about four o'clock in the afternoon. I was so drunk. And I called her and I said, "Listen, and I don't I don't know whether I was slurring or not. But I said, listen, it's Mike. You want to go out? She says, oh, OK. And I'm like, what? Now, had I not been drinking, I may never have seen that woman again in my life. So oh, we went my. out and uh, we ended up uh-huh. getting married and um, had a daughter. But I'm yeah. telling you, that's when my PTSD kicked in and my drinking. The problem was, uh-huh. I think back now that that marriage probably didn't didn't have a chance because of me, yeah. not because of her. Yeah. But I realized with my drinking. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Not that I drank again all the time, but just when I drank it, I wasn't rational. You know, when you talk to an alcohol someone who's drinking, and you try to have a rational conversation. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have one. Well, right. she couldn't have one either. So when when we had issues, right. it, it was like I was had been drinking. I'm. We're not going to fix an issue, and she was always wrong. And blah blah blah. In seven years, it just it disappeared. It should never have disappeared, but it did. And I take responsibility, but I didn't realize that till I got into into AA. Really. Oh, I don't know, she, it was all her fault.
0: Were you drinking heavily from the time you got married? Or were you, again, just a binge drinker, or an occasional... Just a
1: binge drinker,
0: whenever I drank. Yeah. I didn't drink every day
1: and um, yeah. didn't hoard it. I didn't do anything. It just, when it was there, I drank it and got drunk.
0: How soon after you got married did you have uh, your daughter? We'd been married in
1: 1970 and had her in 74, for four years.
0: What was the marriage looking like around the time that you guys... Got her pregnant and and had the child. Well,
1: she tells me that I was drunk Uh the night I got her pregnant. We'd gone to a party and, you know, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And that's the night she got Uh pregnant. She said, some memory, huh, Mike? It was was just sad. But, she, you know, the day she told me she wanted a divorce, of course, here's what I do. Good alcoholics. Mm -hmm. The marriage is just not working. And I've got to get a yeah. second job, so I don't have to be there. And I show up at 11, and she goes to work at 7, and, you know, oh, my God. So I didn't have to see her. And one day I came home, she says, I want a divorce. And I go, what? Why would you want that? Just so sick <laughs> thinking. Yeah. And she proceeded to tell me why, and she was absolutely right. I just wasn't present. Yeah.
0: Here you are with a three-year-old, I guess, by the time that yeah. you got divorced. Yeah. What did that feel like at the time?
1: Well, it felt terrible. You know, it's good news because the relationship was working. It was bad news. And so uh, what ended up happening, I'm in Houston. She went back up to Colleen with my daughter. Uh, she mm-hmm. went to nursing school and got her nursing degree. And I went mm. up every other week to see mm-hmm. my daughter and spend the weekend up there. in Colleen with mm-hmm. her. So that was 180 miles to drive. And it was no burden for me mm-hmm. to do that. I called her during the week, you know, on telephone. But telephone it was expensive calling then. And so still drinking. Uh, after that, it was what, 1977, uh, that's when I met, I moved into an apartment and I ran into guys in the apartment and they were drinking buddies, two of them. Ron uh, was a drinker and uh, Robert were drinkers and we drank a lot.
0: So that's in a, an apartment in 77 in Houston. Mm-hmm. So was it a job that brought you down to Houston from Colleen? Uh, no,
1: I just made a decision that I didn't want to stay in Colleen. I was working in Colleen. I was selling insurance, and you know, mm-hmm. just, I just yeah. didn't like doing that anymore, so I decided to move. And so I got a job in Houston, and that's, that's what got me there.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book Podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. The Big Book Podcast is read by Howard L., who receives no compensation for this vital service work. The Big Book Podcast is an engaging, word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories. Listen to all 85 episodes anytime, any place. Search for Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on BigBookPodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So you're a man of about 30 at that time, yep. I guess, yep. right? When You're in Houston yep. and you're with your friends Ron and Robert. <laughs> yeah. What was that like?
1: Well, it was always drinking. Whenever we got yeah. together, we drank.
0: Did you have a good time? We
1: had a ball. No, no, Ron, <laughs> Ron had a little problem. Ron would drink too much. And he, he would, yeah. I mean, Ron was the type of guy that one time he told me that he was driving down I-10 and he was driving his truck and he would bump cars while he was driving and drunk. Oh, no. And uh, that's the yeah. kind of drunk that Ron was. And Ron could be a mean drunk. So uh, Uh up to a point, we seem to have a good time. But but Ron was the one that had a little bit of a problem.
0: So Ron was the one who set the bar in that relationship, (laughs) right? right, For if you've got a problem with alcohol, it better be as bad as Ron before you admit it. That's Ron. Yep. (laughs) Did he ever get sober? Whatever happened? No, I don't know. I think about him every now and then wonder. He had a
1: child. While he was in Houston uh-huh. with us, and his wife came, he got he got married, and his wife came down, and and uh, you know I don't know whether she was a drinker or not. Robert and I right. would drink, and it was working for a company in Houston, and they would have what's called a manufacturers meeting, which is a uh-huh. way to drink on Friday night. So I'd go down sure. there. By the time nine o'clock came, everybody was gone that we were sitting with, except mm-hmm. Robert and myself, mm-hmm. and he'd just sit and look at me and he said, "Mike, you're such an alcoholic." And I thought he was just kind of saying it, you know, not really meaning it. Mm-hmm. An alcoholic, mm-hmm. but he's just as drunk as I am. So that made no sense mm-hmm. to me. He's an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. We're just drinkers. And uh, I mean, mm-hmm. even to the point where one night I drank too much doing something and I, I hit a curb, my tires went flat. I had to call, mm-hmm. Robert, Robert was with a girlfriend and he said, all right, I'll come and get you. And I'm sitting in a suit on the ground in front of a, closed cafeteria and he drove up and he says oh you are just so pathetic and that was one of the times <laughs> i felt so bad about drinking yeah about drinking i never thought i couldn't control it until i started i knew if i started I, I that's why a lot of times when i didn't you know over the next uh, what was that 77 next 10 years it was just off and on off and on drinking drinking too much i thought i did hung out with people who drank too much or I sure. think they did. See, I thought they were drinking when I was drinking. Maybe a lot of them weren't. Nobody ever said anything to me about drinking too much. Gosh, even in the meantime, I meet this woman right after I got divorced who was a drinker. And, and one of the uh-huh. counselors at the uh, Center for Recovering Families, I mean, she says, you yeah, just ran into right. a drinking buddy. That's all you did. And it was so sad. I mean, I still feel bad. We would go drinking at 5 o'clock, 5.30 after work, meet down somewhere uh-huh. down in the Hyatt or someplace like that. Always nice places. Yeah. And yep. um, and we'd, we'd get drunk, but not huh. falling down drunk, but just drunk, because we still had to pick up our kids at the daycare center. And they're like oh, okay. about six and nine. Well, you, uh-huh. we think we're totally sober and we're not. And we drove those kids home. And I'll tell you what my alcohol did to me, my alcoholism. Uh-huh. And I didn't realize it till later is I would stick around that relationship, get really close to my uh, girlfriend and her kids, and then I'd say, oh, i got to take a break. And I'd pull away, and I'd be gone for six months, Hmm. Then I'd show up again, gone for six months. And I never thought I might have been doing any damage to those kids at all, but, you know, that's got to be really emotional for them. And they were only six and nine years old. So I mean I always uh-huh. I think sometimes you know I hope they're okay. They were just the nicest little girls in the world. So um, my girlfriend at the time with those two kids says I want to get married, and I said, well, I don't want to get married. She says, well, you don't want to get married. I don't want to see you anymore. And I said, <laughs> oh Jesus. Uh, so I said, okay, fine. So I didn't. And about two weeks after she told me that, this is eighty. Uh-huh. This was nineteen eighty five. I remember uh-huh. it was the night that Ricky Nelson died on in his plane. It was uh-huh. New Year's Eve. Two weeks later, I called her and I said, You know, I was talking to my friend and I said, You know, I don't know why I can't be married, make a marriage work. I called her and I said, Let's get married. She said, You're kidding me. And I said, Nope, let's <laughs> get married. So we're <laughs> so she says, All right, I'm gonna be over at the Anchorage Lounge. Remember that place? The Anchorage yeah. up on, on six ten. And she says, yeah. At nine o'clock, and if you're serious, you be there. Well Uh Had I not had any alcohol, I would have said I would have never shown up. But I decided to have about a six pack of beer. And by nine o'clock, it seemed pretty logical to go on over there. And it was so sad oh, cuz all you. our girlfriends were going here puppy puppy here puppy puppy and oh. I've got, and, and we got married on February 14th and I'm telling you from day 1 I knew that marriage wasn't going to work it was just bad thinking that was a marriage that I was in where I had to have a couple beers on the way home just to take the edge off and be okay by the time I got home just to just to make it work
0: did you ever realize or draw the linkage between the bad decisions you were making and the the alcohol no didn't dawn on me at all.
1: You know, here's the thing. If you drink, I guess, and crash your car because you're drinking, you go, oh, it's because I was drunk. But I never had a right. car wreck. I mean, listen, here's the stuff I would do. My, my assistant and some friends went drinking one night. She lived the same direction I did. And so I was driving right. home on 610. I'm thinking yeah. I'm going straight as an arrow and the speed limit. Uh-huh. And she said, Mike, the next morning, she says, what were you doing last night? I said, well, I just drove home. She says, you were going about 90 miles an hour because I was following you and you were all over the road. Why I didn't get oh, a ticket, why I didn't get thrown in jail, I don't know. So I didn't make that connection like there was something wrong. It was normal. Right. You drink, you get drunk.
0: And you carry on, yeah. right? Because you continued to work, didn't you, at that point? Oh, well, sure. Very functional. Very functional. So, except for when your, your friend Robert said what he said to you and the realizations that you came to in that second marriage, right? Okay, whatever it was that you felt about that, were you starting to think that maybe alcohol was becoming a problem in your life? Or, or was, was, there was still no really hard and fast connection yet?
1: No hard and fast connection as far as a problem. Now, there was a right. friend of mine who uh, people would say, I think she drinks too much. I think she's got a problem. Right. And I would look Uh at her and I'd say, yeah, you know, I think about it. Yeah, she probably does. And I stayed out of the conversation. Right. But that's the first time I, well, she's got a problem. Someone I knew. Right. And what happened to me was this. I was starting to black out when I drank and I didn't take Hmm. very much. I didn't have to uh, drink very much. And uh, one night I remember... um, One of the people in my apartment complex, he and his wife and a couple of other people had gone drinking. And I I remember we were drinking margaritas. And and I Uh said, you know, they were the icy ones with, the, you know, all that. And I remember her walking away from the table. And the next thing I remember Uh was the next day. And I saw her, I saw her husband and he says, I don't want anything to do with you. I said, well, what happened? He says, just never mind. I don't want anything to do with you. And that was the first time that I had really made a connection of, wow, there's something here that I did something that I don't even remember that I did. Um, and that huh. made a little bit of a connection for me. It didn't stop my drinking. But that same year, black like I said, if I had a few beers, I would black out, just lose the night. And it was New uh-huh. Year's Eve on 1986. And I went to a party and mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, I'm not going to drink very much at this party because I just in that I'm starting to feel maybe there's, you know, I can't control it. Yeah. And so right. I did. Uh-huh. I, I, all I remember is maybe I had a couple of beers and New Year's morning, right. I woke up in my bed and I went, oh, uh-huh. my God. I was so afraid some, that what's going to happen to me, someone was going to knock on my yeah. door to be the police and maybe they'd say, you killed uh-huh. somebody last night with your wow. car. And I would go, I don't even mm-hmm. remember it. And they would show me. I mean, I can picture this. They show me my car and there's blood on it and, you know, whatever it is. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't even remember that. And I said, oh, my God, I got to stop. I got I I need help. Wow. That's what I said is I want to stop drinking. So uh-huh. that week out of the clear blue, uh-huh. I a friend of mine, a female friend of mine, I said, let's go you want to have a drink? I called her. She says, yeah. And we went over to the Black Swan and we're sitting in there and it's really a nice place. And I'm having Perrier. Uh She's having a wine. I don't know what the conversation was, but this was the magic. She said, well, Mike, do you want to stop drinking? That Hmm. was the magic question, because had she said, are you an alcoholic? Of course, I would have denied, as every good alcoholic should deny their alcoholism. But she said, do Uh you want to stop drinking? I said, yes, I do.
0: And that was the first
1: time in my life I really said, I don't want to drink anymore because I knew the consequence. It could be there. Hadn't happened. Could be there.
0: Right.
1: She said, I have a brother that's in Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, to me. That made, I didn't know what Alcoholics Anonymous was except the guys right. under the bridge. Uh-huh. And so he, right. she says, I'll have him call you. Well, what's interesting is she had him call me. We talked about, I don't remember what we talked about, but he says, Why don't you meet me at a meeting? Uh-huh. And it was a meeting at uh, St. John's. It was in the basement and it was cold and raining and I was a little bit late. And so I don't even know why I went to it, but I did. This is God in my life. I'm telling you. Right. So I go to this meeting. I get into the building. When I finally find that it's downstairs, I get down there. There's a hundred and some people in there smoking. Well, I don't smoke. The room is blue. I normally would have just Uh said, I'm out of here. But I was led to Uh sit down and uh, just sit there. And people talked and it was Red's meeting. And oh, my gosh, people laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. Red was funny as can be. And I don't remember a thing that happened other than magic again. Uh At the end of the meeting, he says, does anybody want a desire chip? And I just sit there. I just sit there. Nobody gets one. He says, does anybody want a desire chip? And I just sit there. And I just sit there and he just does anybody want a desire chip? Three times. I've never saw him. I never saw him do that. And all of a sudden I felt a hand push me up. And I don't know what it was. It was like oh, God's my. hand. And I'm standing and everybody's going, Yay, boy!" so I walked up there. I got this desire chip. I didn't know what it was. I just got it. And Of course, afterwards, everybody's like, oh, congratulations, congratulations, congratulations. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I guess that's what AA is. You go to a meeting and you get a chip and then you leave. So I'm on my way out the door and a guy named Keith Uh C. and um, Bill L. Those two guys said, so where are you going going now? I said, well, I'm just leaving. They said, where are you going to go to a meeting? I I was like, you go to more meetings? I thought I went to one. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, yeah, absolutely. You go to more meetings. And they told me about, you know, you go to meetings. And they stood there and just talked with me for maybe 20 minutes. That made the difference. That's what told me. When you're in a meeting, at least me, when I'm in a meeting, right, right, af- uh-huh. after the meeting, talk to the newcomers. And these guys right. talked to me. I, the next uh, Monday, I went to, to my office and a friend of mine had uh-huh. been uh, had a little bit of experience with AA. And I said, you know uh-huh. where there's a meeting? He says, yeah, I do. And he took me over to the Postal Club. And that's when it started. Wow. And um, I had my yeah. own business. Yeah. I had a lot of free time uh-huh. uh, that I could uh, control of uh-huh. my time. And I went to the post right. oak, and I would go at uh, 630 in the morning. I'd go at 1215 uh-huh. meeting. I'd go to the six o'clock meeting. Uh-huh. I'd go to the eight o'clock meeting. They just were fun places to go. And people were nice and people were wonderful. And I didn't wow. feel like I wanted to drink. But I was when I happened, I was hearing things like halt, hungry, angry, yeah. lonely, and tired. I'd hear the expressions, yeah, and yeah. I think these were so good. And they used to have the promises up on the wall, and I'd read the promises yeah. over, day after day after day. And I was thinking, God, this is wonderful. And so I got, that's where I was for the first three months. I was going to post yeah, and uh, just going to meetings, yeah. as many meetings as I, I thought I had to. And then Dan showed up in April.
0: Okay, so you were essentially just going to meetings and not drinking during the first three that's months. Right. And then Dan shows up and becomes your sponsor. What did you think of seeing God in these steps up on the wall? You
1: know, I never had any problem with God. The religion I was raised was pretty strict in the sense that, you know, it didn't take much to upset God. And I figured I had done Mm -hmm. enough stuff in my life to really upset him. And I couldn't make any atonement to not go to hell. So I figured I was going to hell anyway. So big Mm -hmm. deal. So God God was fine to me. I didn't have any negative thing about God.
0: Because I remember that was one of the first things that you worked on with me, is the resistance that I had to the spiritual end of the program. And I was very, very resistant. There was something about the way you approached it, and especially when you, you got me involved with reading Emmett Fox and listening to Eric Butterworth tapes and that sort of thing that made a huge difference for me spiritually. I'm wondering where you got that from. Is that another something that you inherited from... Dan, or was that uh, something that you picked up on your own? Well,
1: two things. One is, about 84, three years before I came in, I started going to Unity Church. And that really uh-huh. opened me up spiritually. Not religiously, but spiritually. I so I I was really open uh-huh. to that concept of God and the Spirit and, and and working in my life and turning it over to God. Let God uh-huh. handle it, you know. That was one thing. But, you know, Dan was another one. Dan, Dan was really big on on the meetings, the big book sponsoring. And God, our conversations always started out with God. Mm-hmm. I would call him and say, Dan, I got a little problem with this. He says, have you asked God about it yet? And I said, well, no. He said, why don't you ask God about it? And then you call me back. And so it was always... <laughs> that sounds
0: pretty familiar. <laughs> always
1: God was right in the middle of it. And, yeah, and he'd call me yeah. and say, hey, Mike, and I know I know God. And he says, yeah, we're getting there, Mike, but not so fast. And yeah. so everything got got to the point where I got to the point where I just realized before I did stuff i would just say god help me with this once i stopped drinking i never i fortunately never have had a desire to have alcohol again because i know what's Uh on the other side it's like putting your hand on a stove burning it i have no desire to put my hand on there again and so that's where i am with alcohol because i know it's not that i don't want to have a beer no I don't want to have a beer, but you know, being able to do that, you know, people sit down and just have a half a beer, sure. have a glass of wine or some, uh-huh. just social stuff uh, and feel a little yeah. liberated from the booze and a little talk, more talky and stuff, don't want to do it because yeah. I know what's on the other side is that, that dead body that yeah. I killed and didn't know I did it.
0: Are there any things that you remember from the early years that kind of sticks out to you as major in your program? Yeah, the uh, sayings, the
1: slogans, the acronyms that uh-huh. were in there were so good. Dan Uh is a big, big book person. He had a whole group of people he was sponsoring. And and we would all go to the same meetings and we would go to... Big book study uh-huh. meetings. we go to uh, tradition meetings. Um, I remember one time we started the book, the big book. And the, he says, oh, no, you start with page one. And someone said, OK, the page one says Alcoholics Anonymous. And he says, OK, that's our topic tonight. <laughs> I mean, <it's> just <laughs> But big book and, and uh, hanging out with other people who were sober. The, the meeting after the meeting, instead of running away, it was so great to go have coffee with people. You know, and, and they were yeah. so much like me. For years, go to, I still do go to meetings all over the country. I walk into an AA meeting and they know me and I know them. We have an instant conversation. So what happened yeah, was yeah. not only did we go through the big book, we worked the steps and working the steps was crucial. I'll tell you, when I got mm-hmm. to the fourth step, that's when I started realizing uh-huh. maybe that divorce that I went through wasn't her fault. Maybe I had huh. a part in it. And that was the best part of the fourth step for me was starting to say, wait a minute, what is my part in this? And of course, huh. I made that connection. If I kill somebody with a car and I was drinking, that was my part. So I realized that there are times yeah. when I can predict the future. If I do that, that's mm-hmm. going to happen. If I don't do that, that's not going to
0: happen. When did you first uh, get to the doing the fourth step? How long were you sober when you first started working the fourth step?
1: I resisted it a lot. Um, I think, let's see, I met Dan in April. So I think I did the fourth step probably in about, uh, I think it was in maybe this July, August. It took me maybe four, three or four months to get there.
0: Did, did he push you on Mm -hmm. that or, or how did did he did? What was your resistance about?
1: I don't know what my resistance was. Sometimes it's just the resistance of doing it. Um, and so he yeah. laid out the columns for me and he did five columns, including what was my part. And he said, here, listen, he, he said, come on over to my apartment. So I went over to his apartment and he says, I want you to write your four step. He said, I'm going to go to a meeting. And uh, you write your fourth step. (laughs) So I sat there and I did my fourth step. He came back and I said, "You uh, so now what? And he said, well, I'm going to bed. Keep writing your fourth step. And so I wrote, I must have written till about four in the morning. And uh, I just fell asleep. I got up and we did the fifth step. Right away. Right away. It was there. He says, let's just go through this. And, you know, sitting there by myself, going through those columns really opened my mind to mm-hmm. stuff that that had happened to me resentments that i had uh but yeah. every time somehow i had a part in it i was so mad at the nuns in school who beat the crap out of me well you know mm-hmm. it wasn't until i really thought about that i probably, i know i deserved getting the crap beat out of me some of the things yeah. i did i had a yeah. big mouth i couldn't be quiet
0: right Uh
1: uh-huh high school kids that used to come after us all the time well they only came after me after i'd opened my big mouth and yelled some smart aleck remark to them. so you know i realized maybe i had a part in these things that i did
0: so you saw a pattern there oh yeah one of the most important things you said about doing the fourth step to me was it's not about the sharpness of the pencil or the size of the paper uh just before you start Close your eyes and just ask God to guide the point of that pencil across that sheet of paper. Right. And when you're done, you're done. Right. The other thing I want to say was about whenever Dan would say, what do you think God wants you to do? Or just ask God what to do. I used to, when you used to say that to me early on, I, I had a real problem. And even over the years, I'd call you with some kind of major problem. And, and you say, well, just ask God what to do. And I'm thinking, no, that's too easy. That there's got to be, there's got to be, a, there's got to be another way to do this. I mean, come on. <laughs> I still do it. Yeah, I know you do. I know you do, and it's beautiful. So when you got to your ninth step, what was it like when you had to go out and make the amends? Did you have a large list, or how did you approach that?
1: Well, I had a, a list that you know it was scary for me a couple times because my yeah. pride was involved. And the first mm-hmm. one I did was my ex wives. I didn't know what was supposed to happen. I, I thought they were supposed to forgive me. And then Dan was real clear. They, there's no forgiveness necessary. You go out, you apologize and tell them what you're doing differently now. So it doesn't happen again. Yeah, and that was yeah. powerful for me. So uh-huh. whenever they re, however they reacted, it was fine. And uh-huh. you know, the, the ones that killed me the most is I had two bosses. I said, listen, I just got to tell you, I cheated on my expense report. And they both went, <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, (laughs) Jesus. They knew it and and let me get away with it. You know, I did that sort of stuff and I had read how people felt free when you do it. You know, I had to do it fearlessly. I had to do it with God because I didn't know how people were going to react. Yeah, yeah. I I just, it was something that had to be done. You had to make amends and without injuring them or others. That's the key because I've never had an affair But I hear people who've had affairs and people say, do you got to tell your wife you had an affair? I said, well, you're going to hurt your wife if you do that. Don't do that. Go to the woman you had an affair with and say, I'm not doing this thing anymore. But Mm -hmm. Jesus, don't Mm -hmm. mess up somebody else's yard because of you. So you'll feel better. And that's that's what I'm saying is if someone's going to do a four step and a, and a, a ninth step, talk to your sponsor. Don't do a ninth step before you talk to your sponsor.
0: Yeah, go through yeah. it
1: with them because people think, well, I've got this all now. We don't, man, man. As alcoholics, we're pretty sick people. And yeah, we can still yeah. mess up a lot of people's lives if we want to. So I always say don't do a, a night step until you talk to your sponsor.
0: Well, and that was my experience with you because I remember coming to you with a big old list. And you sat there and you said, so what was the harm? And so much of the harm I thought I had done was just imagined. There was no actual harm. And you crossed off so many things that it made that final ninth step amend list or the eighth step list doable. One of the things I wanted to try and accomplish with this interview and the others I do is to talk about the intervening years, Mike, and, and particular milestones along the way that you recognize you would probably have not been able to do had you not become involved with AA. Could you speak to some of that?
1: Yeah, Howard, I'll tell you. One of the things that AA did for me was it gave me a way to live. I was living Mike's way, and Mike's way was all about survival. No matter what, I was gonna survive. And if someone had to die, it was gonna be you and not me. And Mm -hmm. I think that's some of Mm -hmm. the harm that I did, is just to get you away, I'd be harmful or say something wrong or say something nasty. And um, mm-hmm. AA taught me that there's a way to live. I mean, the steps are so logical. First step. I mean, literally powerless. Not only I'm powerless over alcohol, I'm powerless over everything. And maybe there's mm-hmm. a power God who can, who could restore me to some sanity. And then it's just yeah. turn it over. Yeah. Turn it over to God. And I just live off the third mm-hmm. step. So that's what helped me so much. And so, I mean, I when I do my work, I do a lot of... Training and, and uh, working with people, and people say, uh, You friend of Bill W's? And I, I go, Why do you say that? Uh, <laughs> They'll say, Well, you just sound like you might be. I mean, there have been times when I haven't told people that I'm part of AA, even though they are.
0: What kinds of things are you saying that make somebody who may know Bill W recognize it?
1: One of the terms I use all the time is contempt prior to investigation. <laughs> Because <laughs> that's what I do, man. Someone brings up an idea. Man, no, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And I so I caution people about contempt prior to investigation. I say things like, why don't you just turn it over? Oh, really? Turn it over. Where'd you hear that from? <laughs> um, or, or I sometimes I'll say, you know, there's something I heard called hungry, angry, lonely and tired halt. You ever hear that? Yeah, I have, you know.
0: Uh-huh. It's so
1: amazing. The minute somebody says, yeah, I'm a friend of Bill W., and he's, boom, instant rapport.
0: That's a secret handshake, isn't it? Yeah, it is.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And going to the conventions, oh, my God, the conventions are wonderful. Howard, you and I have been to a convention. And, and it just, it's like... Everybody's wearing their name tag. So everybody goes, hey, oh, yeah. how are you? Hey, how are you? And everybody yeah, in, yeah. The, in the city go, you know all these people? <laughs> well, yeah, sort of. But uh, <laughs> what it's done is this, Howard. I, got, uh, I met a woman a little over 30 years ago, and it turned out mm-hmm. that she was in the program. I didn't meet her in the program. And I told her, I said, if, you, if I had met you in a meeting, we would not have gone out because I, I never dated anybody <laughs> from a meeting because Dan says, you um, don't date people in meetings. I mean, the first date I had in a meeting, he says, if you meet somebody, you don't ask them out. You call me and talk to me. I didn't know how to date. Uh I thought it was a normal thing, you know, wham, bam. Uh, My my first dating experience was really interesting because I was following Dan's deal. And it was called, no, you don't sit there and sit for two hours. And and you you take her, walk her to the door, and you leave. What about kissing her? You (laughs) know, you don't kiss her. And I didn't know how to do all that stuff. And so, uh, yeah. uh, anyway, yeah. when I met my wife, it was I did that same thing with her, and turned out she was in the program. What's neat is we've gone to meetings together. We use the steps in the relationship. I'll be doing some stupid yeah. thing. She'll say, "Well, Mike, what step is that you're working on?" And I go, "Oh God!" Uh-huh. But she's the one that told yeah. me one day when I said, "Well, I really I need to make an amend," and she says, "Okay," and I apologize for what I did. She says, "Okay, that's great, nice apology." I said, "What else?" She says, "What's the amend?" I said, (laughs) Well, I made it. She says, No, if you're going to make an amend, that means you're going to change your behavior. Somehow you make an amendment to the Constitution, it changes the Uh Constitution. I went, Oh, God. So our relationship is totally based on this program. It's God's relationship. And we get through it. And when we gets kind of tight, we just sit back and say, Okay, God, you tell us what to say we get through it. Huh. So it's the program.
0: Was there ever a time over the years, Mike, where you thought, okay, I've been going to AA long enough. I, I think I can kind of scale back. I don't need as many meetings. And, uh, you know, I, I'm living with a woman who's in the program, and she's sober, and I'm sober, and life's going good. Was there ever a time at which you felt like maybe it wouldn't hurt to cut back? Absolutely.
1: I moved to Albuquerque, mm-hmm. New Mexico, at 7,000 feet. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm a little closer to God right now. You know, I don't know if I need so many meetings. And I stopped going. Uh, And one day I went to a meeting and I heard a guy say, and I had eight years. And I heard a guy in a meeting say, you know, I had eight years and I stopped going to meetings and I went out and I thought, thank you, God. I appreciate that. 24 years. I'm in a meeting in Chattanooga. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't need to go so darn many meetings. And I had stopped. I would slowed down my meetings. I went to a meeting and a guy said, you know, I had 24 years and (laughs) I stopped going to meetings and I ended up in a federal prison. And I went, got it. Thank you. And so, I mean, just about the time that happened. And what's been so interesting, Howard, is in situations now, listening to your Interviews. Almost every interview I've heard, somebody has had an impossible situation like I can't stop drinking. And I was so helpless and so miserable sitting wherever I was sitting. And I just said, God, take it. Just take me. And he says, the next morning I got up, I didn't want to drink. I went to a meeting and, oh, my God, the miracles when people just turned Mm -hmm. it over. So that's what I found the two times that I remember where I was and what was being said. And I just realized I can't stop going to meetings. I think someone said, I go to meetings to find out what happens to people who stop going to meetings.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you and I both know people who have had very successful careers who travel a great deal and who work a great deal. And there always seems to be a reason why they can't make it to a meeting or they have to scale back on their program. But you and I have both known people like that who got so successful they were cured or they didn't need AA anymore. Did you ever get to that point? Well, I'll tell you, the
1: thing that kind of kept me grounded is every now and then my sponsor would sneak up on me and go, Mike, I think you're a little too smart for this program. I don't know whether you're going to make it or not. You're a little too smart. And that would really ground me. (laughs) So then I would call you from every part of this country. And uh, you'd say, where are you? And I'd say, well, I'm in uh, Toledo. And you'd say, oh, really? And where are you going to a meeting tonight? And I'd go, "Uh, uh, well, I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) I don't think there's a time that I talked to you when I've been traveling that you didn't say, where are you going to a meeting tonight? And I would immediately, now it's so easy to find meetings, but it didn't used to be and uh, I would find a meeting to go to. And so thanks to you, I went to a lot more meetings traveling than I probably would have.
0: Yeah. In fact, that was the next question I was going to ask you about the amount of travel that you do and what it's like to be in so many different parts of the country, so many days out of the year for so many years, the meetings that you must have gone to and the fellowship that you must have gained. And now with covid You can literally go back to those, all those cities. Have you done any of that? I
1: absolutely have. Houston, of course, is one of the cities I've gone back to. Uh Uh, I've gone back to uh, Chattanooga. I've gone to Uh Los Angeles. Uh, I've Uh gone to a lot of different places, meetings, because I just know the meetings are there. And I know the Zoom. Zoom has been such a miracle for me. Uh, To me, I just, I mean, I love Zoom. And, you know, you wonder why God makes stuff like, and I'll say this, Zoom. Why would Zoom show up and become so, uh, be available? And then all of a sudden, as far as a recovery is concerned, became the vehicle. Oh, my gosh, what a gift. What I do is I just hear the same things in meetings. Uh, Everybody's gotten so used to it now. They don't talk about their problems with Zoom. It's just like being in the meeting. And so, as you know, it's like you and I sitting here, you know, it's just like we're with each other right now. Zoom has been wonderful.
0: Yeah. My feeling is AA is going to survive either way, but especially because of friendships and relationships like you and I have had over all the years. And, you know, you're an amazing man. You've been more than just a sponsor to me over the years. You've been a mentor. You've been a confidant. You've been just, I think, everything that a sponsor could and should be. And it means the world to me. And I don't know that I would have survived some of the things that, that you have helped me walk through in my own sobriety. You've held me up at those times. I like to feel that uh, I've been there for oh, you yeah. as well. And you doing this for me today, I, uh, I've thought over the course of doing these other interviews, I thought, I've got to have Mike on. I've got to have Mike on. And I thought, well, let me make sure that, that I got the, the mics set up correctly and get the sound right. <laughs> it's got to be perfect, Howard. It's got to be Perfect. I know what a stickler you are for that. Is there anything else that you'd like to kind of add as we wrap this up about, about your own program and your life with regard to AA? You know, what I'm going to say
1: is, uh, like Dan would tell me, he says, don't be too smart for this program. It's a simple program. Fortunately, I got the message, don't drink. Now, that's me. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky. What I've experienced is, is if I follow what the program says, it gives me a way to live so I don't have to drink. And, uh, you know, drinking to me is just an escape and I don't need an escape if I stay in the program. The other thing that that was so important was service work. Well, when I first came in, part of service was you emptied ashtrays, ashtrays. Oh, yeah. Everybody smoked when I came in. And so but but right. you know I got past the point of that I'm too good to empty ashtrays or clean out a coffee pot or I'm not too good at anything. You know I never know what's going to help somebody in sobriety.
0: It Mm -hmm. may be just
1: nothing more than a phone call. It may be nothing more than just like those two guys, uh, Keith and Bill, that that talked to me before I left that meeting, before I thought I had done AA already. I got it all out of my system. So God puts me in the right places at the right time, uh, puts me at the right meetings. And like I said, you know, you in your own subtle way ask me quite often, have you asked God about that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you do.
0: I mean, you have different ways of
1: doing it, but that's basically the bottom line.
0: Well, and I learned from the best. Before I let you go, I just want to mention one other thing about how important it was. And maybe it was because of your experience with Bill and Keith. I remember you saying, I want you to walk up to at least three people in every meeting that you go to and say, my name is Howard. I just want to introduce myself. And I did that for so long because of you telling me to do it. That it finally became something that I relish doing, and to me that speaks straight to the fellowship aspect of this program, because there's so many people who walk into meetings, they sit down in their chair, especially these days they're looking at their phones, they're almost unapproachable. So that's why I like to catch them at the door walking in, because that way at least I can say hi to them. But how important, and you emphasized it when you said that you don't know whether you would have come back had. Bill and Keith not talk to you. I I just think it's extremely
1: important because when you walk, at least when I walked into an A meeting, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know anything. I felt so stupid. I had no control. And somebody came up and talked to me. And we we sometimes yeah. it's so easy for me to get so so enwrapped with in uh, in a conversation with people that are there to forget about the new people, and the new people mm-hmm. are scared. They need guidance. They need help. And that's what one of the things that I yeah. always did too. And this is Dan told me to do this as well. He says. Get People's phone numbers. Well, in those days, we didn't have cell phones or smartphones. We had to write it on a little pad, and so I had this right. big pad of, I mean, a pad of paper with everybody's numbers in them. And I'd call people. That's what I did. I called people, and they go, mm-hmm. "Who are you again?" I tell, "Wow!" And they would, and then I could hear them later and say, "You actually gave me a phone call," because yeah. because it, I yeah. felt so. um, just out of it when I went to AA when I first went, because I was so brand new. and Who would want to talk to me? And then an old timer calls me and says, you know, let's talk. And I go, wow, I love it. So you're absolutely right, Howard, (laughs) that that idea. And I know I pushed you to do that. Go over and talk to the people, talk to them and say hello, get their phone number, give them a call. And uh, you really picked up on it well.
0: Well, Mike, this has been wonderful and fantastic and great. And I can't come up with enough Actually, what it's been to you, to coin a phrase of yours, it's been wonderful, (laughs) wonderful. Wonderful. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've called you and you've answered the phone. I say, Mike, how are you? Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Tell you, I love being sober.
0: Thanks for doing this again, Mike. I love you. And I'm so glad that we've had this chance to chat. You got it.
1: Thank you, Howard. Thanks for asking me, my friend.
0: You bet. Talk to you soon. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Mike S. for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Show them how to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. If you really liked it, I'd be most grateful if you can leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts it'll help others find us. Visit our website, Interviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. And please join the AA Recovery Interviews Facebook group where our fellowship gathers online. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on its way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.